Hello and happy Valentine's Day. This is Christy Bates in Oxford, Mississippi, welcoming you to episode 117 of the Deep South Dharma podcast. This is being released Sunday, February 14th, 2021. What I'm offering this week is an excerpt from one of my absolute favorite books. The title is On Love, written by Ajahn Jayasaro. Before I get into the excerpt itself, I want to let you know that this entire book and so many other wonderful resources provided by the monastics of the Forest Sangha can be found at forestsangha.org. This particular book can also be found at the Amaravati Monastery website. If you have a Kindle, you can download it to your Kindle. You can download it to whatever device you use to, to read with. And you may consider just as part of your participation in the fourfold sangha, you may want to consider offering a donation, um, practicing generosity of your own to the um, in honor of these uh, monastics who have provided such resources. So now we'll get into the actual excerpt from On Love by Ajahn Jayasaro. The kind of love that people are most interested in is surely romantic love. Nearly everyone hopes to be lucky, meet a soulmate or a good life partner, then to live happily ever after. Truly loving someone and being loved truly by that person is the most popular of dreams. However, wanting to love and to be loved in this manner is usually bound up with the defilements such as delusion and lust Therefore, it is vital to master how not to suffer excessively from loving or being loved. Poets have tended to praise love as the supreme experience in life. Some scientists, on the other hand, see love as merely a result of chemical reactions in the brain that have evolved to support reproduction of the species. Which is it? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? The brain? or the mind. These types of arguments have been around for a long time and never come to an end. A more interesting question is how we ought to behave with respect to love in order to derive the most benefit from it. Searching for the answer to this question begins with observing our own life, the lives of those around us, and the lives of the general population What is the appeal of love? In the initial stage, it is an effective antidote to boredom for those who find life stale, uninteresting, filled with only drudgery or emptiness, or for those who feel lost with no purpose for living. Love can create excitement and meaning. Falling in love is intoxicating, a welcome agitation. 
powerful emotional ups and downs, as if regularly falling into hell and then rising back into heaven, make lovers feel invigorated and alive. Love has many other enticements. For couples living together, in addition to the ability to meet their sexual needs, there is also the security of being the most important person in the world to the other person and a feeling of warmth and escape from loneliness. Having someone with whom we can be ourselves without pretension or concealment is a comfort in a busy, competitive, and insincere world. Being sure that no matter what happens, our lover will not abandon us and will help us deal with our problems with empathy and sympathy, will encourage us when we are weary and in despair, will appreciate us genuinely, and will rejoice in our accomplishments, all these are certain causes of happiness. In addition, if our mate is capable, successful, and well-respected, we feel proud. Love has many charms. Personal love wouldn't be so popular if it didn't have a lot going for it. But as one who has lived the past 30 years as a celibate monk, writes Ajahn Jayasaro, I am probably not the most qualified to expand upon all of its joys. My readers will probably have to supply the points I've missed themselves. But after considering the good things that love can provide, please apply it to your own heart too. When we have determined the benefits of love and what we receive or want to receive from love, we might ask ourselves how much we in turn have given those things to our loved ones and try to improve or correct our failings. What are the things that we should share with our loved ones? Here are a few. Joy, understanding, empathy, encouragement, respect, consideration, trust, patience, forgiveness, being a good counsel, and the best of friends. At the same time, if we want these things from them, we must also let them know. Don't simply assume that they ought to know it themselves without being told, because many things that people should know instinctively, they don't know at all, or they used to know, but have forgotten. Doesn't it make sense for people who love each other to work on clear communication rather than resorting to resentful sarcasm? It should be more pleasant. Otherwise, what used to be sweet may turn rancid. Love between two individuals gets a lot of attention. Movies, plays, novels, fairy tales, and advertisements all seek to convince us that this type of love is the pinnacle of life. A life without it is portrayed as imperfect and tragic. However, if we stop and contemplate for a moment, we ought to be able to see that romantic love in our own life even if we've been fortunate enough to experience an almost storybook love, is never a cure-all. Love can alleviate some suffering at a certain level, but it cannot extinguish all suffering entirely. I'm taking the next excerpt. Young people often view love as the answer to every kind of problem in life. They think that simply loving and being loved is the main thing. With that in place, everything else will work out by itself. 
But if we are willing to look at that more closely, experience teaches us that what determines long-term happiness is not so much the presence of love, but the quality of our actions, words, and mind. Ultimately, a spiritually untrained person who takes love as a refuge is creating the conditions for disappointment. And again, concern and worry are byproducts of attachment in an uncertain and dangerous world. They're almost like a love tariff. Attachment causes us to frequent to accept another person's suffering as our own. Any physical or emotional pain experienced by our loved ones torments us. Sometimes our suffering exceeds theirs. Nevertheless, Buddha Dhamma tells us plainly that mental suffering is caused by mistaken ways of thinking about life, not by particular events or relationships. What happens to us can only be a condition or trigger for inner pain, not its cause. Our challenge then is how to love with the least amount of suffering. Developing mindfulness, or sati, to govern our thoughts and prevent our minds from running on into excessive proliferation is an art, a life skill which can greatly ease this kind of suffering. And next excerpt. The aim here is not to denigrate love, but to develop a more rounded, nuanced understanding of it. We may observe, for instance, how love relationships can weaken other friendships. Jealousies can flare up. It is difficult for us if an old friend doesn't get on with the person we love or if they seem to get on too well. Without love, this suffering would not occur. It occurs as a direct result of love. Discriminating boundaries and bias are inherent in personal love. The fact that you have stronger feelings for your partner than for the people you pass on the street every day is precisely the point. Its specialness is its allure. But this love, for all it gives us, cannot lead to peace. And one more. To summarize, love gives many benefits. It guards against loneliness and brings warmth and companionship to life. But it is not an unalloyed good. It is still bound up with the cycle of birth and death, inherently incomplete. It can cause suffering at any time for all who lack wisdom. And without spiritual education, the difficulties that it brings to our lives are unavoidable or at least difficult to avoid. It is not the goal of Buddhism simply to find fault in love, but to teach us to open our hearts to the true nature of things. We should do this because contemplation and understanding of the way things are is the path to the end of suffering. One method of doing this is to regularly reflect on the simple truths of life and let them soak in. We remind ourselves that it is natural for us to get old, we cannot avoid getting old, that it is natural for us to become ill, we cannot avoid becoming ill, 
it is natural for us to die. We cannot avoid dying. Separation from all our loved ones and treasured possessions will happen sooner or later, without a doubt. So we are free to love as if we wish, but it is wise to constantly bear in mind that the time we have to spend with our loved ones is limited. It might be for a short period of a few months or years, or a longer period of 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. But no matter how long we are together, ultimately, it is merely a temporary association. Reflecting on the fragility of life and impermanence makes our love more intelligent and gives it the protection of wisdom. And here are further excerpts. The Dhamma teaches us to abandon cravings, which are the cause of the suffering and the harm that accompany mundane love. We should aim to be one who neither suffers from love nor causes suffering for others on its account. We should purify our love so that it takes on more and more the qualities of metta. When two people live their lives with Buddha Dharma as a refuge and try to be each other's good friend, they have a chance to enjoy lifelong happiness in their family. Cultivating Dhamma together will make the couple's relationship absorb more and more Dhamma principle and become less and less of a hindrance to reaching the goal of spiritual liberation. Householders who are each other's good friends trust each other and give encouragement when times are hard and their partners feel dispirited. They know how to listen and speak to each other and to act as a calm and prudent counsel. They understand and forgive transgressions by accepting each other as unenlightened human beings with defilements. They harbor no thoughts of victory over or of taking advantage of the other. Instead, they have the courage to point to what is truly precious with respect and good intention at the appropriate time and place. At the same time, they are ready to listen to suggestions, comments, and cautions from the other. This, at least, is the ideal to move toward. In Dhamma practice, wisdom acts as the direct antidote to ignorance by examining the reality of life and world with a stable, stilled, and unbiased mind sustained in the present. The direct antidote to craving is the systematic and integrated development of wholesome mental states. In the case of love, the most prominent of these virtues are loving kindness, earlier refer referred to as metta, and the effort to be a good friend. Training ourselves to practice restraint, to keep track of our emotions, to let go, these are at the heart of the negating side of the practice. But at the same time, we need a positive ideal to cultivate. That positive ideal is provided by the pure love called metta. The distinguishing characteristics of a pure love are, one, it is unconditional. Two, it is boundless, a wish for all living beings to be well. Three, it is not a cause of suffering. Four, 
It is governed by wisdom and equanimity, also known as upeka. It is a miracle that such a love exists and that every single human being has the ability to develop it. When we watch the news and see the cruelty and heedlessness of our fellow human beings, the feelings of depression and despair that can arise may be dispelled by reflecting on our innate ability to feel metta. It's true that human beings can be awful creatures, but it's also true that they have, the, have it within them to be better than they are. Given the nature of metta outlined above, practicing to educate our love means one, make our love less conditional, two, make it less discriminatory and less preferential, three, reduce its capacity to cause us suffering, four, cultivate wisdom and equanimity. Metta is a pure love because it is free of attachment to the idea of self. With metta, we want nothing other than the happiness of living beings. Metta is love which flows out naturally from a fulfilled mind rather than an agitation in a mind that lacks refuge. Metta wishes for nothing in return, not even love or understanding. The Buddha said that the unconditional love a mother bears for her only child is the closest approximation to this love in the world at large. But for the one who cultivates metta, that love is not restricted to one's child, but it is felt for all that lives. In our practice, once we have contemplated the drawbacks of conditional love and the beauty and nobility of the unconditioned mind, then we will have the courage and faith in the value of our own development. The quality of metta, which is perhaps the most difficult for lay Buddhists to accept, is universality. Personal love, by definition, lacks universality. It is bound up with bias and boundaries, and although they can be much reduced, they are unlikely to disappear altogether. One reason Buddhist monastics practice celibacy is to prevent personal love from abstracting the flow of metta in their hearts. For householders, Although opening up one's love is difficult, gradual improvement is still possible. We must be vigilant and with mindfulness oversee the heart so as not to give too much weight to the thoughts of us and them, inner circle and outer circle, near and far. We should reflect on the reality that all living beings are our companions in the cycle of birth, old age, illness, and death. We should try to treat all others with equal respect, consideration, and goodwill. This is another way of purifying love. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle.
I hope you found those excerpts from the book On Love by Ajahn Jayasaro to be useful to you, to be inspiring. Particularly, I hope it inspires you to go read the entirety of that book. There's, even though it's a small book, there's quite a bit more to it that I think you would find useful and nourishing. And then if you have interest in uh, keeping up with the writing that I'm cultivating right now, you can follow me on Medium, medium.com slash at Christy Bates, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E-B-A-T-E-S. Judy Seeley and I are still offering the online Saturday morning Oxford practice groups. You're welcome to join us. I'm still offering midweek meditations on Wednesdays. And those recorded meditation sessions are then uploaded here to this podcast. But you're welcome to join us live. The links and information about that can be found at deepsouthdharma.org. you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.